Good morning. Let's, let's just ask the Lord to bless this time. Lord, we, we just had these moments where we said these words, I surrender all. That we give up all, that when we don't understand, that we will choose you. And so that's our simply our heart today, Lord. We desire to choose you. We desire to follow your path. We want to see it more clearly and more accurately this morning. So we trust you in these few moments that we have together um, to bless this, to open our eyes and ears to be able to hear and see more accurately. And we trust your path. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Welcome to church. The marriage counselors get this lectionary text. Um, we're encouraged to hate our families. You know, actually, this is the beauty of the lectionary. Uh, it forces us to deal with these kind of difficult subjects and difficult texts that we would oftentimes just skip over because that's just a little too messy. Um, how, do I, how do we make sense of that? Uh, but the idea of following the lectionary causes us to grapple and struggle with these things. And so, can, can you imagine a political candidate saying, come and follow me and vote for me. Now, your taxes are going to go up, your income's going to go down, you're going to lose all that is important to you. Come on, sign up. I mean, they wouldn't make it out of the primaries. But it seems like that's what Jesus is saying here. You want to be my disciple? Really? Well, you're going to have to learn how to hate your family and give up your possessions and get ready to experience a very difficult death. Because this idea of carrying your cross was not just simply a figure of speech um, during Jesus' time. There were real crosses. There were real deaths that were going on. But suppose the story is a little bit more like this. There's a leader of an expedition, and he's saying to his followers, he's saying, we have to get over a mountain range um, that's going to be very treacherous. Uh, the weather is bad. There are, there are storms brewing, but we've, there's a group of people that have been disconnected from the world that are in desperate need of food and medical supplies. Come on. It would make more sense for him to say, now, all that big backpack and, you know, those those, all that luggage on, on wheels, not going to work. Um, you're going to have to lighten the load. As a matter of fact, whatever it is that you take, probably along the way, you're going to have to let go of some of that. It might be the time to send postcards to family and friends right now because some of us are not going to get back this way. I think the Jesus story is a little bit more like that. So Jesus is not saying that, that, um, that we should not... Uh, value those that are important to us or appreciate our valuables. But he's suggesting that there's a hard task at hand, that this is a difficult season, that what, this, what we're about uh, moving the kingdom forward in the world is a difficult thing, and it's going to take a sacrifice. 
Do we think about that as American Christians? I wonder if most of our thoughts as American Christians is mostly, what is this morning, this next hour going to do for me? How is it going to help me feel more comfortable? Um, get some of my needs met? How am I going to feel more fulfilled by following um, this path? Do we think about sacrifice? Do we think about cost? Not sure. Jesus said, give, all, give up all your possessions. What are our possessions? Possessions are things we own, we bought, we were given, we inherited, we found, we're responsible for, we have to maintain, and we have to either take, take it with us, get rid of it, or figure out someplace that we can possibly store it. Some of you have just moved or you're getting ready to move, and you have to figure out what to do with all the stuff that you have. Some of us are empty nesters, and we have to figure out what to do with all that stuff that was left behind when the kids left. Some of you have stuff, but it's junk, and you don't want it, and you need to get rid of it, but you're trying to figure out what to do with that stuff. So we want to declutter a little bit today. We're not going to go to the top of your closet. We're not going to go look under your bed. But we want to do a little bit of mental decluttering today and get rid of some of the junk that we have in our thoughts and minds. Some of our clutter, physical and mental, comes from our family. Generations have passed things down to us. And some of them are good things. We have treasures, like Brent's uh, grandparents. We have the clock that they were given for their 50th wedding anniversary. And that's a treasure. Some other things that we've been given from family, they may consider a treasure. Uh, we don't quite so much. Uh, maybe it's old, ratty Christmas ornaments. Or maybe it's paperback books from the 70s. And we don't really want them. But, you know, some of them have been around for so long, we don't want to get rid of them, and we kind of even forget that they're there. They become a part of the scenery. I work a lot with people who have mental clutter, and some of the mental clutter that I hear almost every day in my practice, and this is false, by the way, but I hear families have been handed down this generation, from generation to generation, this idea of, all men have some huge flaw in them, and you have to pick what you live with. Now, that's not true, but that's something I've seen handed down from generation to generation. So women will say, well, yes, he's an alcoholic, but he works. Or, yes, he's an alcoholic, but he doesn't beat me. Or, yes, he beats me, but he doesn't beat the kids. So it's, it's something they've been handed down for generation to generation that you have to go along with this because this is your family belief system. Some of our clutter comes from our own life experiences, places we've traveled to, things that we've done for good or bad, people that we've met, relationships that we've had. But a lot of our stuff is just accumulated from American life. Beanie babies, extra Tupperware, an ancient hair dryer, old towels that you may need someday, college textbooks, prom dresses. Our brains have accumulated some of the same types of things. Now, some of them are simple sayings, like God helps those who... Help themselves. Or one of mine, life is short, wear cute shoes. <laughs> 
some thoughts help us. Like, what are you supposed to do when you're faint? You sit down and you put your, your head between your legs. It's a thought that we've learned that we know how to function, so it's helpful for us. What if you have a tooth knocked out? You put it in a glass of milk and you call the dentist. Those of you who don't know that, that's free advice. <laughs> but there's thoughts and attitudes and beliefs that we've picked up and they may be cultural and they may even be beneficial for a season, but they aren't helpful in the long run. Any of you guys, I know you have to, have parents or grandparents that went through the depression or lived right after that? Do you feel that little twinge sometimes when you throw something away? I have that a little bit with aluminum foil. I will like take aluminum foil off of the cake and I'll go to throw it away. And I hear my mother or my mother-in-law in the back of my brain going, oh honey, it's just got a little bit of frosting on it. We can just wipe that off and we can re reuse that. Because their generation learned to hang on to everything. Butter tubs. I recycle them or I throw them away, but I will still have that thought of what I heard, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without, that came from the Depression era. My mom's 90, and I know when we go to clean out her house, we are going to find so many Cool Whip and margarine tubs in the cabinets. I just, I just know that we are. So just as we have to sort through what comes into our house and we have to figure out what do we keep, what do we get rid of, what do we put here and what do we put there, we have to sort through the things that come through our minds, that come into our lives and that affect our attitudes and our thinkings. And we have to make sure that we're not collecting ideas or habits that are contrary to a Jesus way of living. We just finished this uh, series on Netflix um called Foil's War. We like British shows. Um, this one actually is about a detective back in the World, World War II uh, era, and he's in a little town on the coast um, of England, just south of London. And he's basically solving crimes and murders while the war is going on. It's quite a fascinating show about what's going on culturally there uh, at the war. And it, and it was so popular that it just kept going, and so they ended up having to write stories about what happened after the war. And and when, um, when the men were coming back and everything was settling down. And so you see this pretty amazing upfront view of what the war was like. You hear these stories about nightly uh, air raid sirens that would go off. And uh, everybody would take shelter. And there were blackouts. You had to turn all your lights and all the electricity off so that the enemy couldn't see. And your neighbor's house or a building in the city might be bombed and just left uh, in rubble. There was food shortages and, and all kinds of things of lack. And, and as the war ended, what began to happen is that they felt like it really wasn't getting much better. That the food shortages were actually even a little bit worse. And some of the men were coming home after some six years of of being away and trying to reintegrate back into life. And it was very difficult, very challenging. Some of their jobs had been given away to other people. And, and uh, it began to settle into this statement that is said over and over toward in the last shows, um, this kind of hopelessness of, was this all worth it? What were, we, what were we fighting for? Now, this seems so different than what we remember happened in America with ticker tape parades and, 
and the baby boom era and the housing boom and guys going to college on the GI Bill and everything seemed to be coming, coming back alive. But the Brits experienced this very close and upfront. Uh, they were walking through the rubble in the town after, the, after the, the war was over and again rationing and they settled into this sense of hopelessness. And this idea of, was it worth it? began to be the spirit of the age during that season. I was praying one day this week, and I was praying specifically against cynicism, that we wouldn't give in to cynicism. And the word that kept coming to my mind was ennui. It's E-N-N-U-I, for those of you that aren't familiar with it. Ennui typically means apathy, or a lot of times we use it to mean boredom. (coughs) But you have to work with me here because at one time I was a French major and I spent a lot of time studying French literature and government and history and so the thought of ennui had a slightly different meaning to me than just this boredom. Ennui to me was almost a soul weariness mixed with a bit of disdain or superiority. It's a snarky kind of hopelessness. But it was more than an attitude. It was a spirit of the age. And so just for fun, I googled on we, and I came across an article in Mental Floss. It's one of those fun, fun fact websites. And it tells you how to tell if you're struggling with angst, ennui, or weltschmerz. <laughs> Never knew that one before. Um, So briefly, we want to give you the definition from mental floss of those terms, slightly summarized. So first of all, angst. Angst is the word for fear in German, Dutch, and Danish. The term became associated with Soren Kierkegaard. He talked about a type of anxiety that arises in response to nothing in particular, or the sense of nothingness itself. It's not exactly fear and not the same as worry, but a simple fact of the human condition. A feeling that disrupts peace and contentment for no definable reason. So are you dissatisfied and worried in an introspective, overthinking German kind of way? (laughs) If so, you've got angst. Ennui. Ennui is the French word for boredom. The English word annoy was borrowed from that in the 13th century. We developed the word annoy, but it was borrowed again during the height of the 18th century, the European Romanticism, when it stood for a particular fashionable kind of boredom brought on by weariness in the world. Young people at that time feeling like the French Revolution did not fulfill their promises took on this sense of hopelessness, this sense of lethargic disappointment, a preoccupation with the fundamental emptiness of life. It's nothing mattered, so nothing aroused passions. Eventually, ennui became known as something that artists and poets suffered from. So a claim to ennui, if it's, oh, I'm suffering from ennui, it's a mark of spiritual depth and sensitivity. It implies feelings of superiority and self-regard. The idea being that only the bourgeois or the uneducated people, um, too stupid or too deluded to see the basic futility of life would be happy. So basically, if you have any hope or you have any joy, you're just ignorant and you don't get it. (laughs) 
Are you tired, so tired of everything in the, about the world the way it is? Do you proclaim this with long, loud sighs to everyone around you? Then you have ennui. <laughs> Weltschmerz. You gotta say the Welts. Uh, German, word for wor uh, German word for world pain. It was also coined during the Romantic era and is in many ways the German version of ennui. It describes a world weariness felt from a perceived mismatch between the ideal image of how the world should be and how it really is. Though Weltschmerz and ennui are pretty close synonyms, ennui focuses on the listlessness brought on by world weariness and Weltschmerz <laughs> focuses... <laughs> <laughs> focuses on the pain or sadness. So there is perhaps a greater sense of yearning in Weltschmerz. Part of the pain is that the sufferer really wants the world to be otherwise. That very German sound makes it seem more serious and grim than ennui. So you have sadness in your heart for the world that can never be, then you've got Weltschmerz. And so I was praying through this, and then I read this article. I thought, aha, we are living in a world right now of angst, ennui, and Weltschmerz. That's what we're being immersed in. And then as I thought of that, and then as I was praying, Scripture started coming to me. Things like Psalm 43, 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Or Psalm 62, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him. For God is our refuge. And then I thought about Romans 1, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't listen to the snarkiness and the cynicism around you. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. This is a wait-a-minute, wake-up kind of a call. Why am I believing in despair? Why am I allowing discouragement around me to affect me, to affect my attitude or my mood? And then what really topped it off is I was reading the daily office, and we're reading through, in the Old Testament reading, we're reading through the book of Job. And so we see that Job has gone through all these horrible things, and his friends are not being the best friends in the world. And, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of the scripture, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. Have we taken up the spirit of the age? We, the people of God, the people of hope, are we taking on the spirit around us or are we remembering who we are? So today we just want to examine our hearts a little bit. Uh, do we have one of these or maybe a sprinkling uh, of all three of them? Uh, not only are these antithetical to the biblical concept of hope, they're also a very poor substitute for b even biblical grief. There's a, a biblical way to struggle with the reality that the world is broken, that things are not as they should be. 
But it's not with a sense of rootlessness or a sense of lack of hope. It's, it's with a sense of trust and hope that God is going to put things back in order, that he will make all things new at some point. And so there's this sense of trust and hope and, and belief in that. So how do we be a people of hope in the midst of a world that is dealing with all of these in some form or fashion? There's a lot of people that are in a lot of fear right now, a lot of anxiety. We just see it, it just building um, in, in our experience. And so how do we be a people of hope? So the first thing is, what is it that we're looking at? Do you remember the Joshua and Caleb story? Children of Israel coming out of, of years of slavery, and they're being freed. Moses is leading them, and, and God's been talking about this promised land that he's going to take them to. Uh, a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to take you, and I'm going to, you're my people, and I'm going to be your God. And, and so early in the journey, actually, they come close to this promised land, and Moses sends out 12 spies. He says, go and see what the people are like. See what the land is like. See, see what we're going to experience uh, in stepping into this promised land. Uh, well, 10 of them came back and said, yes, it's a beautiful land a land flowing with milk and honey, but there are giants in the land. Too, there's too much. There's no way that we are going to, they live in huge fortresses. There's no way that we're going to be able to step into this and take possession of the land. There's only two of them, Joshua and Caleb. They came back and they saw something different. Not only did they see um, the land and the goodness of the land, but they, always, they also were people of hope. And they said, come on, we can do this. Um, let's go and take possession of the land. But because of the majority report, because of the 10 that came back and saw things through a different lens, the children of Israel were left to wander uh, in the wilderness for a full 40 years. And not one of those that was there that day over the age of 20 would ever step in uh, to, to the promised land. Because of, of the report that they came back with because they saw, uh, they saw the brokenness and they believed that it was hopeless. So what are you looking at? What are you dwelling on? What is your thinking? You know, I encourage people, if they don't really know what is causing them that disquiet or that discomfort within them, start writing it down. I read one author and she recommends that every morning as soon as you get up, you write three pages. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter if you write about the weather. It doesn't matter if you write and go, this is the stupidest thing. I can't believe I'm sitting up here in the morning writing all these before I've had a cup of coffee. By the time you get to three pages, you will have gotten into something a little bit deeper of what's going on within you, whether it's anxiety, fear, whatever it is. So let's examine our thoughts. Let's see how are they lining up? What are we really dwelling on? And we have to keep ourselves focused. And we have to keep refreshed in the Lord. Psalms 1 says, Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his light they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. So how can we be refreshed? How do we let our souls come alive? Well, Psalm 1 here suggests it's through developing deep roots uh, in our life. 
you know, if you water your lawn just a little bit every day, the roots won't ever go deep. It's got to be through these moments of, of soaking and, and, and letting things settle in deeply to us. And so this is different than just kind of looking for the next thing at, at, at the moment. Uh, we remember back in the 90s and early 2000s, we remember in, in charismatic world, uh, the, one of the main things that you would consistently hear from people is, did you hear so-and-so teaching on such-and-such? Uh, it was, you've got to go listen to this. And it was just a buzz constantly. And so people now at that point, they were passing out cassette tapes. You know, okay? And so everybody had all these little piles of cassette tapes that they were listening to and moved into CDs and stuff. But it was, um, but it was kind of an inspirational, inspiring kind of thing that was happening. And, and yes, when you listened to it, it would inspire you for the moment. But oftentimes, by Monday morning, we forgot what it was even about. Uh, rarely did we begin to actually apply it in our life and did it um, actually do some transformation. Um, and so what do we have to do um, so that we can deepen our roots, so that we can deal with the droughts uh, that we have in, in life? In our marriages, I say to married couples, you know, if, if we could like work a week and then take like a week off and leave the kids and all the financial issues and all the stress and stuff and go to like the beach and the, or the mountains, like do a cycle of that like every other week, be sweet. We'd really like each other all the time. I mean, it'd be, it'd be pretty great, right? But that's not what real life looks like. And so if we aren't in these daily rhythms and daily habits of loving each other um, consistently, um, even during times of drought, we're going to have a hard time in the difficult moments. And it's, it's reason why we talk so much uh, about rhythms, habits, and disciplines of our faith. In a few minutes, we're going to come to the table. The table, to me, inspires me in some way every, every Sunday. But I'm really not coming just for the inspiration of it. I'm coming to reorient myself towards the reality that I am dependent on the influence and the strength of God every day. I am dependent on what he has done for me. There's no way that I could have done this on my own. It reorients me. It changes my thinking and, and, and uh, connects me with the church. It connects me with the story of God's people. Uh, we talked to you about the, the daily office, which is this daily rhythm, the morning and the evening, that has a grouping of scriptures. And the really cool thing about this, there are millions and millions of people all over the world reading these same scriptures, the same part of the story every single morning, every single evening. We're praying certain prayers together for certain people, uh, groups throughout the world, for certain church groups throughout the world. We're making confession. We're receiving repentance into our hearts. And we're doing that as, as a rhythm. We're, we do those things because they, 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 they put deep roots. Uh, these, these, eventually, they change our responses. When we begin to hear things that bring anxiety, and you know, by 11.30 today, you'll have heard something that's going to stir up some anxiety in your life. There's, some, there's so much out there. I tell so many people today, you just need to stop listening to the news. Uh, they're dealing with ways, so much anxiety consistently. But, but when we hear those anxiety-producing things, eventually if our roots are deeper, instead of, oh my gosh, how do we, how do we fix this? We've got to go do this. We've got to make this happen. Our first response is to simply pray. 
we simply go to God and say, God, direct and lead. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't do any kind of action, but it's all directed um, by him, and it's in him and through him. So these rhythms dig, dig deep roots and put roots down in our life. The habits also form our thinking and our attitude, our beliefs, and they affect our actions. It helps us learn how to live in line with who God created us to be and the mission that he has for us in the world. Psalms 1 says if we have deep roots, we can produce fruit in season. Our leaves don't wither. We're the people of God. We are the light of the world. We are the hope givers. If we dig deep into God, if we're refreshed by his spirit, if we keep ourselves from discouragement for ennui, angst, or heaven forbid, velschmalch, um, <laughs> then we have fruit. We produce fruit. And the fruit that we produce is to nourish people around us. God doesn't have us produce fruit so that we look good, so that we're impressive, so that we can wow everyone around us. God produces fruit in our lives so that we can nourish the world and bring them in to his kingdom. John, or in John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. For life, you've got to stay connected to me. You've got to stay connected to me just like a branch is attached to the vine right there so that I can give you life. I can nourish you. I can refresh you. You can produce fruit. But be aware. Count the cost. There's pruning that's going to be involved in that. And so pruning is going to include some things that we may not want. We may want to look cool and sophisticated and in with the times. But God wants to work in and through us to bring people into his kingdom. So this cost, this pruning that takes place, um, doesn't always feel good. Uh, as a matter of fact, it generally hurts. Uh, fasting is one of those disciplines that we recommend. Um, giving up food for a meal or so. You know, physiologically, fasting causes a flight or, uh, fight or flight response in us. You give up food for just one meal, and all of a sudden, we start panicking. Um, we start thinking about, how am I going to get the next meal? And there's something in that that creates this sense of recognition of how dependent we are on a meal, and then ultimately how dependent we are on the giver of the meal and who has given us life and sustains our life. It's good for us, but it hurts without realizing it. Little by little, the pain that we experience and the anxiety that we experience, we start covering up through accumulating things. And over time, we don't even realize what we're doing, and we start depending on these things. They start forming our identity. They start forming a sense of security in us. And so when we begin to let go of some of our possessions, I, th I think that's why God uh, directs us to give, to be givers, uh, because it hurts. We'd rather keep that money in the bank just in case something happens this week. But it hurts. There's a, there's a, there's a pruning that takes place. And we realize that I, I couldn't, I didn't produce this. It's something that God gave me the ability to, to have a job so that he provided these things. It's something that comes from him. It's something that I'm dependent on. But it hurts. And we're 
we're the people of hope here in the middle of a world that is full of anxiety. And as Janice was alluding to a minute ago, when Jesus was speaking to this population um, all throughout the Gospels, most of them were Jews. And the Jews had misunderstood the blessing, the purpose of the blessing in our life, the, the reason that God has done what he has done for us. Um, is so that we can then turn that towards others. The Jews misunderstood that. They thought that somehow because they were special or that they fulfilled all of the things of the law, that God loved them better and, and therefore that they were blessed, but then they would consume it. And I wonder, are we, is, is, is that not what we do, particularly as American Christians, um, that we just take it in and we think that, well, God really loves us better. Um, we are blessed because we're his people or his country or whatever the thoughts are. And we take it in and we consume it. Instead of recognizing the purpose of the blessing is so that we can take those blessings and be a blessing to the world. So before we go to the table, let's close our eyes and pray for a minute. God, we want so much to be a people of hope. We want to reflect you and your goodness to those around us. Help us to sort our stuff, to find out what we've allowed to come in that's not of you. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe we've slipped into negative thinking. Maybe it's a family belief that really is ungodly. Or maybe it's a self-centered way of thinking and living. I deserve more. We don't want to give in to the spirit of the age. We don't want to give in to things that are not like you. We want to be Jesus followers, reflecting you and bringing hope and healing to the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.